the people that are crazy about Bitcoin that are still operating a multi-million dollar business in the US, unfortunately, they still have to pay their bills or their debt in dollars. Or move to El Salvador. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Good morning, sir. Dougals, what's up? It's Juneteenth, man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, recognized. You are always in a different mystery location. I, mean, I feel like you're like I a like traveling salesman, salesperson. Yeah, in my dreams, right? Um, today, I am in the state that is the 13th largest based on area in the U.S. <laughs> 13th, okay, perfect. 13th and the 30th largest based on population. Dougals, where am I? Okay, so fairly large, not that populated. Um, I want to go with like a Utah. Oh, killed it. I'm in Utah. My favorite thing about Utah. There's actually lots that I like about Utah. It's the only state I've seen that has a state dance, a state dinosaur and a state firearm. That, that's quite a combo. Yes. Yes. Any guesses on what you think the state dance dinosaur or firearm might be? Uh, state dance, the bump and grind. So close. State firearm, <laughs> the Uzi, <laughs> and state dinosaur. I, I'm just going to go straight T Rex. The state dinosaur is three for the three? Utah Raptor. No, okay. no. The state firearm is one I'm not familiar with uh, the Browning M1911. Uh, and the state dance is actually the best, it's the square dance. <laughs> I <a> said Samsonite. <laughs> Samsonite. All right. So, you know what's happening out here in Utah? Prices are crazy, man. Gasoline's up. Well, yeah. I, I'm going to Zaxby's for lunch. Do you know Zaxby's? Zaxby's I've heard of amazing. it. Yeah. I feel like recently, amazing. only recently I've heard of it. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's like from the Carolinas or something, but somehow there's some in Utah. I'm a big fan of Zaxby's. Beautiful. And, uh, this reminds me of the best article I read this week, uh, Wall Street Journal breaking down inflation stuff. And so let me give some high level stats for the listeners. Um, we'll throw this out on the Twitter. I think really good stuff to be aware about that we've probably all forgotten about at this point. In the past hundred years or so, uh, if you look at tracking of inflation, there's been probably two major deflationary periods. That was in the early 20s and early 30s. Um, and then uh, there's been five or six major inflationary periods, Dougals. Any guesses on the highest inflationary period in like the last 110 years? Is this like the, the largest peak or are you looking for like the longest period of time? Uh, largest peak. Let's start with largest peak. World War One or World War Two? one of those? Yeah, right. So just after World War One, you have a pretty significant peak. Basically... Uh, like 1918 to 1921, 
prices were rising as much as 20% per year. That's kind of the highest peak you see. That's There's crazy. definitely some spikes around World War II, probably about 1943-ish. You go above 10% per year. And then again, in 1947, you almost get back to 20%. You want to pop in for a sec? Because I, I think it's important. This is going to sound uh, potentially an oversimplification, unneeded explanation. But I think it's important to get down to brass tacks as the why it's important to talk about inflation for a sec. So basically, when you're saying inflation rises by 20% a year, that means the thing that costs a dollar last year will cost me a dollar twenty this year. Yep. So as a human being, as like just a consumer, you know, strutting around Utah trying to go to Zaxby's, it's important because things are more expensive and your wages are likely not increasing by 20% a year. So just like as a person, stuff's more expensive. As an investor, it makes holding cash a non-viable or negative asset, right? And so at times of inflation, you want to figure out where to put the cash. So there's like the human side, the investment side. You can continue. Yeah, right. I just and wanted to pop in just to like brass tax. Yeah, no, let's actually reset with those basics because they're really valuable to think about. You know, the Economist, the Economist magazine has, um, and they use it more to talk about like foreign exchange rates and if they're fair. They have this thing called the Big Mac Index, right? Which is basically like, how much money in different countries it, it actually costs to buy a Big Mac because they're trying to disassociate from a dollar figure to like something yep. tangible. And yep. if you talk about something like a Big Mac index as it relates to how your purchasing power changes in a place of high inflation, it gets really scary really quickly. The article that I'm referencing details what looks like a lot of housewives in like 1971, but there was there was movements throughout the 60s and it actually started in Denver, Colorado. And there's people picketing outside of supermarket stores being like, <laughs> I think one of the signs said, $1 of Chuck should not cost $1.39. You know, like it's basically saying, yeah. this is not fair to me and my family. The way inflation is impacting my life is really meaningful to me and my wages can't keep up. If we continue the history lesson, basically, you continue to see those spikes through the 50s. Things are generally under control till about 1966, which I think is the start of the food price protests. And then things are pretty challenging throughout the 70s. So in 1973, along with the OPEC oil embargo, um, you have inflation peaking around 10%. And then in 1980, it again gets back to 12 or 13%. You know who becomes uh, Fed chairman in 1979, Douglas? My boy Volk, Paul Volk. Yeah, right. Really tall dude. I think he was like 6'8 or something. Chain smoker, um, ruffled some feathers. But he came in, we alluded to this last week, and raised interest rates like crazy. In doing that, he was basically making it more appealing to hold on to your cash rather than to spend your cash, which takes some of that cash off the sidelines, which adjusts the supply and demand for basic goods in a way that the supply isn't running crazy and therefore the prices should normalize. In that case, it took a significant amount of time. I mean, it took basically throughout the 80s where we got to this place of a lower inflation um, area period. The other thing I thought the article just mentioned that was so fascinating is if you're born past after 1981 is the way to say it, you've never really had to deal with a single inflationary spike above five or 10%. So this generation that's 40 or less, I think inflation is a foreign kind of concept in the US anyway. And 
I think that sets the stage for some of the concerns that are happening today. Now, I'm not ready to forecast if inflation will be a problem in the next five years, but I wanted to get that history lesson out of the way and then kind of get your thoughts on what that might mean and where we might be headed. Yeah, I think that that's, that's right with regard to the people born after 1981. Because if you look at so the, the Fed, when they're looking at interest rates, buying, selling bonds, all that, right? They're doing their open market activities. They're targeting 2% inflation. Today, when we talk about inflationary fears, we're talking about getting to 2%. Like that, that is where we're, yeah. we're, we're scared of the, the world beyond that is a world that no one's seen. And so the fear and uncertainty comes up at such a relatively no, low number when you look at what you were just talking about. So I think that's absolutely right. It's like 20% inflation isn't something that anyone even can contemplate, really, these days, or we know what to do with. And usually during inflationary times or when uh, people will say, we can talk about other investment thoughts, but historically, it's go go to uh, hard assets. You pick yeah. up real estate, you pick up gold, you pick up commodities, right? Because it has tangible value as opposed to anything that's fiat. And it's interesting right now when you you think about inflationary uh, investing styles and what's already inflated, everything is quote unquote inflated already. So there aren't cheap, hard things to go after right now. Yeah. Uh, and if you're scared of if you're scared of cash and you're scared of anything else. Yeah. What's the and it's actually so, sorry, I'm going off here. But if you go to 1973, so there was that. um the 1973-1974 was a big stock market crash uh, in those mm -hmm. two years. Like stock market got crushed. And so fear of holding cash because it's going to go down in value by whatever, 10 to 15%, whatever that range was that you were throwing out per year, yeah. or fear of putting your money in the stock market when it's going to go down by 30 to 40% per year. Where do you go? It's a, I mean, it's a challenging time. So, uh, to your point about commodities, I mean, I've seen some studies. I guess I'd just say for the listeners, do a deep dive on that before you mindlessly throw your money in gold, because I've seen some stats that gold isn't always the best inflationary hedge, despite there being like some momentum around that story. I don't know that the facts actually bear that. One of my favorite inflationary hedges is simply holding stocks, because if you own Zaxby's and Zaxby's increases the prices, as they increase the price, typically that their profits also increase. Now their profits, let's say they used to make $10 million a year. Now they make $15 million a year. Well, that $15 million a year isn't worth what it used to be worth in a heavy inflationary environment. So there's other things with that. But it's funny when you talk about people not being used to it. I think um, it's got some people rattled right now. And yes, CPI isn't anywhere near 2% and hasn't been recently. But if you think about specific assets like homes and some other hard asset stuff, I personally feel like they're just on a freight train uh, with costs running away from reality. And that has me more concerned about inflation than I certainly have been in the last decade. It's unknown as to what exactly is going to happen. But the what we've talked about a bunch around the supply chain issues, too, are they're pointing in that same direction. If you... If you look at the reality of what's happening in hard assets like housing, right, going through the moon, if you look at basic economics and supply demand and what drives up prices and decrease in supply is one of those things, right, that can drive up prices. And we are seeing 
um, shortages everywhere. Uh, did you see the news this week on the, there was a Chinese port. I can't remember what it's called. No. Yeah. I'll, I'll just, I'll drop briefly. There's a, a Chinese port in Guangdong province, which is in Southern China. Out of this port comes over 90% of electronics that are sold in the world, which is first of all, insane <laughs> a, a by problem. itself. <laughs> like how has that not been a fact that has come just, just that been a fact before, but they're having, they're having supply chain issues because Guangdong province over the past, I'll call it month or so recently has had COVID spikes again. And so they shut it down and the shutting down of the province has led to decrease in manufacturing uh, and decreased shipping. And so you have this port that has 90% or above of exports, right? Of electronics and it's not happening. And then we've already talked about semiconductor stuff. I mean, it's just like we're fragility. We've talked about <laughs> fragility and yeah. I can't find where there isn't fragility. No, but it's one of the, it's the most interesting thing happening right now. In addition to things that feel like inflation is happening that may not be showing up in CPI. So home prices, crazy up. Car prices are crazy up because they're having supply chain challenges building new cars. I read today that the average car on the road is the oldest it's been in like 20 years um, because it's more expensive to buy all types of cars. Even used car spikes are up. It's funny, we've been kind of perusing for a, a potentially new car for us for a year and the prices that were available for that model with that age 12 months ago are not even you can't even touch it like everything's up 20 or 30 percent for that exact same so-called deal electronics obviously if you have supply chain disruption yep. prices are going to go up it's a very interesting time and this i want actually to tie back just a conversation we did last week relating to microstrategy and michael sailor I was doing some more research on him and his approach this week. So I caught a podcast from September of last year. And it was interesting, Douglas, because some of his early hypothesis, if you go back, you know, almost a year ago at this point, was basically listening to the Skippy and Dougal show. He was concerned about <laughs> uh, expensive assets. And, you know, he had he had a solid strategy, I think. And so his uh, company, MicroStrategy, very interesting backstory if you have any interest, went to MIT, um, found a way to become CEO of what became MicroStrategy at 24. And then COVID hit, you know, fast forward to this year, uh, COVID hit, he has like $50 million of costs come out of his business because of travel with sales staff and everything else. And his client base remains solid. And so he ends up in a really cash rich position. And that's where I think he had some extreme reactions. He was much more concerned about inflation than you and I are. And he started looking around for assets to invest in, thought about buying another company, uh, thought about investing in stocks. He really needed the Skippy deep value approach because I could have made him all sorts of money at this point in time. But uh, it, long story short, he ends up with Bitcoin. And at that time, you know, again, a year ago, he ends up with the a hypothesis for Bitcoin, but he's also trying to buy back shares of his own company at the same time. He's also trying to do other things. What I wanted to pick your brain on is simply, you know, I don't know that that's the most rational approach, but it was fairly rational a year ago. Now he's at the point where he's gone a little more off the deep end, not to talk trash about Michael Saylor. I'm sure he's a great dude, but like he's now taking out debt to buy Bitcoin. How do you think 
that journey happens. How do you think you go from a point where you're just trying to do right by your employees to, as you as you alluded to last week, you're putting another bullet in the revolver and spinning the chamber and seeing what happens, seeing how lucky you can get with the leverage you're taking off. I don't know deeply what's going on in the boardrooms of of a micro strategy specifically. Right, so I, I, I'll, I'll touch on on their position for one second, then I think as you were saying, like just take a more abstract like view yeah. around what could be going on. So one is to, I was looking at their, after we talked last week, I was looking at their balance sheet. And if you don't count their, their Bitcoin holdings as cash, they have about $80 million in cash from what I saw. And I think it was almost $2 billion in debt. So not, not including Bitcoin. And so that's just to give you a sense for like borrowing money to buy Bitcoin is that, that that's the type of position that they end up getting put in. It's like taking out payday loans. You say, I need money. So I'm going to borrow against my next paycheck. And then if you don't, if you don't make up for whatever the reason why you needed that money in the first place are, you could now you're just in more debt, but still in that same precarious financial position. And so the option you have is to take out more debt and it becomes this like negative doom loop kind of cycle uh, that you're in. And it's, you have to figure out how like a Ponzi scheme situation, right? You have to figure out how to, how do you pay off what you currently have by borrowing from the future? That, that could be the situation you're kind of in, right? If I, if I think about, again, don't know where they are, but if I think about the situation, you have a rational process, you buy Bitcoin, Bitcoin starts to go to the moon again, you have to reinforce your, your purchase of Bitcoin. If the price of Bitcoin isn't upheld, then you are so screwed yeah. that you have to put everything that you can into making sure that Bitcoin's upheld, right? That, that could be a situation that they're in, right? If, if Bitcoin goes from, I mean, it's already gotten you know, cut in half, but if Bitcoin goes to like $15,000, like they're screwed. I would have to imagine you're out of business with that much debt. Um, yeah. and this actually reminds me of a macroeconomics 101 or maybe it's micro, to be honest. The people that are crazy about Bitcoin that are still operating a multi-million dollar business in the US, unfortunately, they still have to pay their bills or their debt or their debt financing in dollars. Or move to El Salvador. (laughs) True. Yeah. Dougals, if Bitcoin gets cut in half like three more times, you know that I'm picking up the three Bitcoin and moving to my surf village. (laughs) But that's another point. I guess we'll just continue to update the listeners on this. I don't know that I have any breakthrough insights, but it's fascinating to watch. And I've been thinking about personally, like when in my investment life or maybe my my real life outside of investing, have I gone, uh, let's turn Michael Saylor into a verb. Like when have I gotten Michael Saylor on something, you know, where maybe I started off with the best intentions and then I've gone to a point where I'm taking way more risk than I should be. And I'm sure there's some points. I think early in my investment career, I can think of a couple of examples where I did that, but I never took, I never used debt to do it at least, you know, like it's just something that I want to continue to watch. But yeah, that's the whole other thing. Like when I listened to this interview in September, 2020, he, he wasn't planning on leveraging any debt to do anything. And I could disagree with his hypothesis at the time, but he generally seemed to have the best interests of his company and the people that work for that company in mind. And now I think the debt piece just starts to make it really reckless in a way that probably doesn't end well. And I hope I'm wrong for, for him and his team. I hope so too. We shall see. Can I fishbowl you? Please.
All right. There are a few things that I read over the la- this last week, which I think have a really interesting connection. I'll, I'll talk about them separately, just in case, because sometimes my connections I try and make really just, well, they just don't connect. So, so I'm going to talk about them separately, and then we can figure <laughs> out if there actually is a connection. So first, there is the Chicago Booth, that's the business school at the University of Chicago, Chicago Booth Review article. It's kind of like the Harvard Business Review. What it talked about was how the savings of the 1% fuel the debt of the the, ni- the bottom 90%. So savings of the top 1% of wealth in the US fuel the debt of the bottom 90%. The name of this article is How the 1% Savings Buried the Middle Class in Debt, another one of those clickbaity type titles. And the reason for this, so one does if I just if I just drop that, I'll call it factoid that came out of their research. What's your general reaction to that? And then I can dive into the some more of the detail. Initial reaction is it makes perfect sense and it speaks to a lot of the inequality challenges that we talk about on this podcast. So it makes sense at first glance to me, for sure. Yep. And to give a little bit, this is more economics, to give a little bit of the the mechanics, at least the high-level mechanics of how this happens, is you have to think about what savings is, what what form savings takes. And so if you have the 1%, you're talking about people that can't figure out how to spend all the money they have, basically, right? It's, yeah. it's, so, it's, so, it's so much cash. And so what they end up doing, what their savings looks like is it's either in a literal savings account, which is so money sitting in a bank or a money market type account, um, or they're buying fixed income securities. That's, this is after stock allocations, spending that you need for your life, all that, right? You end up having a lot that's in a savings account or in a fixed uh, income account. Mm-hmm. Now, a savings account, the way the banks make money is they lend out the money that's in savings accounts, right? So you're effectively, you're, you are in, um, indirectly, when you put money into a savings account, feeling someone else's mortgage or auto loan or whatever the case that might be. Um, or you're investing in fixed income securities, which is literally debt. And so that's the, the mechanics, which I, you intuited, obviously. But that's the mechanics of how this works. And so if you have the 1% that are putting that hold so much money that are sitting in the savings accounts, and then you have the bottom 90% that are taking out mortgages or taking out auto loans or taking out payday loans or whatever the case might be. That's how yeah. that funding is actually happening. And there's such a disproportionate amount of, to your point, amount of debt that's, I would even say a disproportionate amount of risky debt that's taken out by the bottom 90%. Because you might have, going back to what we talked about last week in the Pro, uh, ProPublica article, the debt that Elon Musk is potentially taking out, I don't know if Elon is, but the, the wealthy, yeah. just using him as a representative of the wealthy, the debt they're taking out is borrowing against like their wealth. And so you could say that's much less risky, right? They're, they're borrowing against money they have. But the debt exactly. that the bottom 90% are taking out are debts that they need in order to live. It's a different, just a different beast. And so, well, and, I, yeah, go ahead. And their, their debt's probably against uh, future income or assets. So it's it's just, it's a very different equation. Now, Dougals, when you talk about the bottom 90%, I mean, the the bottom 10% is a whole different ballgame than the, than the 80 to 90% range, which is your top tier <laughs> of wealth. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is it always, does this article always talk about things in the bottom 90%? Because I think there's some significantly different um, income needs within that wide range of wealth. Yeah, it it does. And I don't think it gave numbers as to where that bottom 90% starts. 
I mean, we, we could look right in other places to figure out where the numbers are. But yeah, it separates the way that they separate things out are the top 1%, the next 9% that get you to the top 10% and then the bottom 90. Yeah, that's the way they separate okay. out everything. So it didn't go any deeper okay. than that. But yeah, so it's, that's, it's interesting. And, um, and that goes into so the other thing I was reading about is we're now I don't know if you knew this, but we, we now in the US have set a household wealth record as of the end of Q1 2021. Yes, at 154 trillion dollars um, in US household wealth. And this is, it, it's really interesting. The thing that I found I, I was reading, somehow I clicked through a bunch of stuff and got to an ING article. But the the chart that I found that was really interesting here is it was showing over the last year um, where the changes in wealth are. And this is not surprising, but it was so interesting to see is when you look at when the stimulus checks hit, how much that changed the, the net increase in wealth. And so you see April, 2020, uh, you see January, 2021 and March, 2021, these huge increases in net wealth. And they, and they, and if you look at the changes in income, right, that's starting to go out like real income that's starting to go up now, but it's nowhere compared to what the stimulus checks did. Um, and I yeah. knew this intellectually and like qualitatively read articles here, but seeing this chart, I just went like, wow. So first, the majority of the, the wealth that was created, as we talked about, came from like the top 1% who are feeling the debt. Yeah. But, but then, but there are also, you know, others that are just the stimulus checks are just sick. So I know it's not new news. It was just really interesting to see this in, uh, in the form of, of graph of how much the stimulus impacted. Can we talk a little more about that feeling the debt piece though? So, I mean, yeah. Typically, there's a middleman. You talked about savings accounts, and I'll throw out uh, interest rate examples that aren't realistic, but will prove a point, right? If I'm part of that top 1% and I have a savings account of 10 million bucks and I get half a percent interest rate, the bank might turn around and, and loan that to the lower 90% and charge them 3% interest, right? And so the bank's getting a huge cut of, of that transfer of wealth, I'll call it, even though it's debt. How does the article break down the fact that there's an intermediary almost always involved in that managing the 1% wealth to transfer that as debt to the lower 90%? Did they dive into that? It didn't talk about the that third party very much, except, except in that um, it's necessary right, to, to fuel the transaction. But otherwise, they didn't dive in a lot. The, the point of it was was mostly how um, there could, there's a debt trap that's created in this process and you end up in a cycle of the the wealthy fueling the debt of the non-wealthy, which in turn allows the top to then save more, which in turn allows the bottom to borrow more. Like that was more of the cycle yeah. they were putting out there, but not not going into the that quote unquote middleman. So let me get your thoughts on this. This wasn't on the agenda, but I find it interesting. Some of the stuff that's happening in the decentralized finance space, again, largely in cryptos, is that middleman, that banking institution is fulfilled by lines of code. So typically the borrowing that's happening in cryptos right now is like 100%, I'll call it asset backed, but it's like backed by wealth that someone has on the balance sheet. So a simple example here might be the 1% has two Bitcoin. And the lower 90% needs 
a tenth of a Bitcoin to do something, right? They might borrow from them and that would be collateralized. And then if the value of the debtor's assets reduces to a certain point, basically their assets backing are automatically liquidated and sent back to the party that provided the initial funds. There's some pros and cons to that, right? Because you take an intermediary completely out of place, but there's also like no mercy, no justice. It's basically like if this math equation flips to a point where we think we need the collateral to cover, cover your debt, it's gone. So it's it's a much more limiting structure. But what do you think, would, would a decentralized finance structure have any ramifications to the same challenge? Would it make things harder on the lower 90%? Would it make things easier on the lower 90% or is it just a different uh, means to the same end? The devil is such such in the details, I think, with this because the where I think the biggest issues would come from and what I would say is probably most likely, sadly, is that the, the way that the systems would be built there would benefit the top 1%. Because when something, when it becomes a, effectively like it's code and like a math equation, right? How you set up that equation is everything. Yeah. And most likely the equation is going to be set up such that it doesn't benefit the bottom 90%. When you have a, a human being, let's just call it, it might be an institution, but like a human being that's in the middle, that human being can say, the system says this, but we're going to override it, right? And allow whatever to occur. We're going to, I'm going to call you from the collections department of the credit card. And I'm going to say, okay, I'll give you we'll give you three more months, right? To pay this down. Yes. We'll cut your interest rate, yeah. right? When it's a math equation and the person that is paying the coders, you know, to build that math equation, they might just say, actually, no, we want to collect that money now because cash in our pockets matters and there aren't overrides. And yeah, well, that, it, it, that's exactly what's happening. I mean, there's no mercy. There's no kindness. There's no human element. But so let's reset a little. We would... Well, maybe there's not an official stance on this, but the best thing to do for that lower 90% would be to find a way to get out of the debt cycle, right? So if we're talking about the devil in the details of how that debt is funded, collateralized and collected, um, maybe we're focusing on the wrong things. Like what are the ways to reduce that debt cycle? Or is that so inherent in this equation where you're saying the 1% has this excess capital that they have to put to good use? that they would make it well not they maybe the intermediary that is the bank would make it desirable to take out that debt because they're trying to put that capital to work i'm just kind of thinking through this because the us has become so addicted to debt to finance future economic growth at the government level but also at the personal level that i don't know how you kick this cycle in a way but I do understand the negative unintended consequences that come from it. It's interesting. I appreciate you bringing it up. It is interesting. And let me, let me throw on the third thing that I read, uh, which is around corporate debt. Do you know what corporate debt is sitting at right now for, for us companies? I mean, it's 2021. I'm just going to guess it's an all time high. $11 trillion. So when you talk about, getting into a cycle of using debt to fuel the future, right? This is, it's at the ultimate here. To put $11 trillion in context, 
what is the U.S. GDP approximately right now? Is it like two trillion? Oh, no, it's it's a, it's like twenty to twenty one, twenty two trillion dollars U.S. GDP. Oh, sorry, I was thinking the wrong number. Yeah, yeah. And so, so the the half over half U.S. Corp, corporations and their bonds, right? Issuance, the debt that they hold is over half of U.S. GDP. I mean, it it's it's crazy where they sit right now. And we've mentioned the zombie companies in the past. Uh, there is this Wall Street Journal article article um, called Pandemic Hangover, $11 trillion in corporate debt. It's worth a read. I'd say go out, read that. One of the lines that they have reminded me so much of something you've said a couple of times here. It says, one encouraging fact for investors is that many companies didn't add debt over the past year to buy back stock, increase dividends, or otherwise juice returns for shareholders. They borrowed money on an emergency basis and could be in a position to pay down debt once that emergency is over. That is great. The thing that you've said a bunch in the past around buying a house is forced savings. And you said, yeah. you said someone could say, I, I have this pile of cash and I'm going to invest every month, you know, a couple thousand dollars. I'm going to do that. I don't need yep. to buy the house for forced savings. I'm going to do that. But what you end up doing is saying like, oh, look at those Nikes. I'm going to buy that computer and don't end up doing the investing you're talking about. This reminds me so much of that fact that yes, it's great. I think that there are companies, they took out money at historically low rates such that they could have it just in case of emergency. And then if mm -hmm. you say emergency's over, now they're just gonna start paying back down that debt. That's optimistic. When something pops up in your company and it says, oh, there's this hot new investment that we could make that could fuel future growth. And you go, okay, I, this month I was gonna pay down part of my debt, but we're actually gonna put $20 million into this new project instead. I think that's where it starts to become dangerous and where the, you know, there's a mixed reviews coming out of the Fed as to when they might start thinking about rate hiking. But when that starts to happen, this level of debt is insane. It's, it's, there's like, there's so much of it. Um, that's just another point of fragility. Yeah, man. I'm always buying those Nikes. Like I can relate, you know, uh, my air force wounds. <laughs> There's some fresh stuff. They did some new like Air Maxes. Damn. Uh, so, Douglas, this thing's going to blow up. I just don't know when. And I hate being that guy. I'm actually, I take that back. I'm not going to be that guy. And there is so much fragility around every corner right now. You know, I rebalanced my investments recently. And the US is so expensive that I almost don't hold. I think like less than 40% of my portfolio is in the US now. And so it's so crazy my portfolio is like completely disconnected from reality in terms of US financial news. And I'm happy to be there because every time one of these headlines pops up, I get more cautious and, and more concerned. But I don't, know, I don't know what it means. I think what we've said before is just, it's always a good time to make sure that you're comfortable with like your current financial holdings if, we are near the top, you know, like it, it's a good idea to review things and make sure you're comfortable with, with where you sit. Cause there's a lot of ominous signs out there. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. No, there's no investment advice and definitely nothing specific, but broadly just psychological advice. Make sure that you have a, a rational view on what you're doing. Cause in, in addition to what we're talking about of the, the different areas of fragility and they exist everywhere, there's also so much hype on so many different areas that you could death by a thousand cuts yourself into uh, into memes 
it's crazy. You're like, oh, there's there's the crypto stuff. There's the meme stocks, right? You've got yeah. NFTs. You have a house. You oh, well, commodities. You know, like there, there's so much, and it's all a bit crazy. And so, just take a step back uh, and make sure that your psychology is matching your risk tolerance is matching what you believe about the world right now. It's yeah, not even close to financial advice. We don't give that on the show, but psychological advice is like double check your sanity. Um, if things blow up soon, are you going to be comfortable riding that out? You know, do you have leverage or hopefully not uh, to ride that out? Like just, just think about that as a thought experiment. I think that's good. You know what I've been thinking about? I don't. I mean, how hard it is to get a job in Colorado. You see this craziness? I've been I've been looking at this for yeah, like seven months now. But give give the headlines and then let's chat about so it. So I love this. Back in uh, back in January of 2021, a Colorado lock kicked into place. Uh, it's the first in the United States that has some basic standards around hiring. I think either strongly, strongly encourages or mandates that you put a pay range associated with a job opening in Colorado. And the reason they did this is, uh, I think it's called the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act. And it's trying to make sure that people, and I think historically women are an example of this, uh, maybe the most common example, who sometimes don't get paid uh, what they should for the work they do compared to a male. And so Basically, what's happening now is there is a fair amount of companies that are putting out job postings that say, in the new remote post-COVID world, they say, you can uh, work anywhere in the United States for this job opening, except for Colorado. And the reason they're doing that is because they don't want to put a pay range associated with the job opening. I find this fascinating. I think just, again, as a thought experiment, like, what does that say about those companies that they're going out of the way to exclude people just because they don't want to be transparent about the the true pay range of a job posting? And I, I can't talk to those companies, but what I, I'll say a couple of things. One is that I think the idea of transparency around pay, I love. Like I think I think it's so, it's great to understand if you are a job seeker looking to to get a job at the current moment, what you could potentially make, what that range is. I think it's super valuable. I also think as someone, even if you're not looking for a job right now, but you're at a company and thinking about your career trajectory, to be able to see what potential um, financial outcomes could would be for yeah. different careers you take, I think it's really valuable. It's just, it's great to have that data. Love it. The other thing I'll say is that, um, so my my company actually went through making everything transparent uh, at the end of last year and, you know, throughout the, the beginning of this year, we have employees that are all across the country, but significant number that are in Colorado. And so we just, we went transparent everywhere and they're the cultural inf infrastructural, cultural ramifications, I think is something that is important to be considered outside of just the, the pure transparency. There's a cultural benefit to transparency. And there's also potential cultural cost because you, you now have to justify everything. And that is something companies haven't had to do in the past. What do you mean why... justify everything? Justify the pay range? Yeah, justify the pay range for every job family that you have mm -hmm. in your company. And that's something that hasn't had to be explained before. And so there's the, as I was mentioning, right, you have the, you have the benefit of someone that's, in, that's doing this job of saying, oh, what, if I did that job, I could make that. Like, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. 
That's one side of it. Yeah. The other side is saying, wait, can you justify to me the value of this other job and why that's more valuable than me? Oh, is and, that happening more at the manager? Oh, no, that's happening at the individual level. Yeah. Some, exactly. I mean, also, there could be more transparency at the management level that says, gosh, I didn't know, like, Dougal's team over there is is making bank. Like, they're not adding that much value. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of uh, exactly. interesting ramifications here. Yeah. I think it's good. Like, I think that, that having to do that justification is actually good discipline and and can push equity further. So I think it's good. I'm just saying that that's a big change for companies. And so beyond just the pure like transparency of it and not wanting to show um, what the pay is, having to think about we have to get our act together in that uh, in that way is not a small feat. Yeah, I, I think there's baby steps here, but I was not somehow, even though I have lived in Colorado at the time this law passed, I was somehow not aware of it. And then um, I s- started to hear the buzz and I think there will be some unintended uh, consequences and ramifications, but I think there's more positives than negatives. I even think about, I do a lot of mentoring with college students, right? And some of these people have no idea what the equation of like the cost of college looks like in terms of paying back loans as in, yeah. in terms of the careers they're interested in. And with some additional transparency here, they might be able to say, you know what? I really like this, but it pays half as much as this thing that I also kind I like, I like this thing 80% as much. And I'm excited by this company and it pays double. Like that might make yep. sense for me. I don't expect it to be without hiccups, but I expect more states to follow Colorado's lead. And I'll tell you, I'm probably taking an overly harsh uh, approach on this, but the companies that are posting for any job, uh, any location but Colorado, I, I think that's going to come back to bite them. I mean, we're not talking, you don't have to say you're going to pay this person $88,000. You could say you're going to pay this, the pay range is between 70 and 105. Like you can be really creative with this scope you don't have to completely give away all the rewards here but we'll see you do have to make sure your house is in order yeah which is hard and maybe some people are just trying to buy more time um to get their house in order and in 2022 uh they'll have all their ducks in a row yeah i i I think you're right that more states are going to follow suit i think places will get their ducks in a row but even with what you were just saying if you post uh you can get paid between 70 and and 105 the person that's making 70 is going to go, well, can you tell me why I'm not making 105? Is that what, and, and is that the worst thing in the world? Um, no, I'm just saying, but companies aren't ready for it. I'm not saying it's bad. Yeah. I just think it's, it's not just about the, the broad abstract thought of being transparent because companies may be fine with that. It's the, the level of conversation that you now need to have. And most of these companies likely are inequitable, which is the point of the law. But if you are that inequitable, now you have to justify it in public and it's hard. Yeah, no, I love this point. Um, Cause you're, you really hammered it home for me. So yeah, if there's a, if there's a lady that should be making 90 and she's making 70 and a job posting is the way that it's clearly illuminated to her that she's the current one being screwed by this inequity uh, within her company. I sure hope that there's a way to, bring that to light and then fix it. Right. And I had a thought, yeah, you're totally right. So a lot of the reason people or companies are dragging their feet is because their house is in such disrepair. 
with the inequity they have, that they're not even ready to get to a point where they can do a range because they probably look at their internal payroll and see the inequities jump off the page. Exactly. Because if you're, if you're rolling with the strategy that's, I want to pay someone the least amount that they are willing to take to take the job. And also within that same broad job family have, I really want this person and I'll pay them whatever they need to take the job. Then you're going to end up in that place where our range for this role is from 50 to $200,000, right? And you just go like, what? Like, how did that, how'd that happen? And how'd we I, end up in that spot? Exactly. And now you gotta, you got you, you know, come home to roost or whatever the right phrase is. Um, it's, it's legit. So I'm excited. I think to the, you know, the point that you're bringing up, like I'm excited for this to happen. I think it's going to be, it's going to be great. And it's going to be tremendous headache for folks to get there, but we got to get through the headache because it's the right place to be. I understand both sides of that equation. I understand having a individual or two that you're trying to hire that is just a rock star, and you go, we have to have this person because if you run the true numbers on the uh, meaningful difference they make for the business, it's off the charts. I also understand like from a company ownership perspective being like, we just need a person to do this. And Hey, if they'll take, I, even if market rate is 65, if they'll take 50, that's great. I don't know that companies did that maliciously. You just got me thinking here. I, I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting new law and Colorado is typically not at the forefront of these things, but they clearly are in this point. Well, good. That was a uh, good learnings for me, Diggles. Appreciate that. Yeah. Fun combo. We wrapped. We wrapped. As always, thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe or follow. Twitter at Skippy Diggles, Gmail, skippydiggles at gmail.com. Hit us up with that listener mail. 